0: Bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing James Joyce's The Dead. And Mrs. Morgan's annual Christmas party was always a great musical affair. Never once did it fall flat. For 30 years there was a party, and for 30 years everyone sang and everyone danced. I believe, I believe this is one you all know. Which? Wow. What you going to do? It's the Parnell song. Oh, no, 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 no. no, no. Oh, like Aren't we tired of it's simplistic patriotism? I hate this song. It's mindless. It's, it's so I love it. Do you now? <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> who, who fears to speak to of Parnell's plight? Who blushes at the name when cowards mock our patriots' fight? Who hangs his head, head in shame? Who oh, hangs his head in, in shame? Oh, <laughs> He's all a name and half a his country thus. But, but a true man, a man will fill your glass with us. We'll fill your glass with us. But first, how are we doing? I hope this episode finds you well. And I know it's time. It's time for me to answer a question that's been on your mind ever since we did the Kiss of the Spider Woman episode. Everyone has been writing to me, calling me on the phone. I'm just here to tell you that I have an answer for you. But what's the question? Ah, maybe you don't know the question. So the question that so many of you have been asking is, did the script, the book for Kiss of the Spider Woman, ever show up at your local library branch? When you recorded the Kiss of the Spider Woman episode, it was in transit to that branch, but has it shown up? Have you read it? No and no. (laughs) No. it is still somehow in the nebulous limbo region known as in transit. That's its status. It has been in that status for weeks now. At this point, I would rather cancel the hold. But the thing about the Chicago library system is when it's in transit, you cannot cancel that hold. You are going to get it when you get it and you better pick it up that's how the CPL system works. It's just been sitting there in that status for weeks, so who knows when I'll get a chance to read that. It's utterly annoying. What else is happening with the musical man these days? Well, uh, speaking of the library system, I checked out the two volumes of Stephen Sondheim's collected lyrics. Okay, so the titles are Finishing the Hat and Look, I Made a Hat. So that's volume one and volume two. I've been reading the first volume this past week. It's really great. There are so many wonderful stories and contextual footnotes about the process of writing all of these shows. Sondheim is really great at uh, getting into the really nitty-gritty of the technical aspects of his music and then he's also got a lot of juicy backstage Broadway gossip, which everyone enjoys. Some of the highlights for me from this first volume, Finishing the Hat, include the fact that Jerome Robbins was apparently not just kind of a dick, but a major dick to Stephen Sondheim during the development of West Side Story. Uh, He was always sniping and snipping at Stephen. He was very young when he wrote that show so Jerome Robbins sort of took advantage of that put him at the bottom of the totem pole and sort of wanted to seemingly put him in his place, remind him of his place and there was one story in particular that I recall from the from this volume uh, in which Jerome Robbins unfavorably compared Stephen Sondheim to a composer that he knew Stephen hated and he knew that it would really bother Stephen if he was compared to this particular composer and that's why he did it because that's Jerome Robbins' baby. He also talks about how drum robins would go and examine posters for productions and he would measure the typeface of his own name to ensure that it corresponded to standards in a contract that he had that he just was obsessed with the idea of getting very very precise credit, to the point where it it really did come down to, how big is my fucking name on this poster? Is your name bigger than mine? Because it fucking shouldn't be. Hand me that ruler! I'm going outside! Uh, Sondheim gets really he gets kind of prickly and nasty himself throughout this first volume. He takes a golf club to Mamma Mia with relish. I mean, he really does go after Mamma Mia. He doesn't spend a ton of time on it, but the limited amount of time he does spend on it is just, he he. Spares, no punches. He really goes after it. It's quite funny to me. Jukebox shows in general, he would, I think, list those under a category he refers to as why musicals. The why musical is the show that you watch and you just think to yourself, why? Why is this? The the material that you're basing the show on was already so rock solid and proved to be entertaining. Why did you decide that this source material needed to be musicalized? And the, the question always is answered with the retort of, well, probably money you know there there was probably this idea that oh you know it's popular so we'll just put it on the stage and write some songs and that will be popular too we will make more money than we made initially because you know what's better than money more money And Sondheim admits that, you know, there were many moments throughout his career that he pursued commercial success over, you know, artistic discipline. Sondheim also has no problem speaking ill of dead composers, chiefly because it's impossible for them to be hurt by his criticisms. He makes that clear that, you know, I'm not going to talk about people who are alive at the time of me putting together these volumes. I'm only going to speak ill of the dead because they can't get upset or pissed off at me. And anyone who does take offense, I really don't care for in the first place. So I'm just gonna really go into some of these people. Even his mentor, Oscar Hammerstein, he has a lot of uh, very level-headed, calm criticisms for him. Uh, some of his criticisms are not as level-headed and calm when it comes to, I think, Lorenz Hart really seems to dislike Lorenz Hart. He he uh, he does he is very hard on himself, I should say that. He's, he's very consistently able and willing to point out moments within his shows that embarrass him to this day, that he wishes he could go back and fix. Uh, it's very funny. He talks about how these volumes are are the definitive versions of lyrics that have changed throughout the course of decades. But he says, you know, these two volumes that you're holding in your hands, uh, they are definitive until I change my mind, which I find to be very funny. Uh, one last observation uh, here, Patty, then we'll go right into uh, our show of the week, I promise. I just I read this right before sitting down to record. Apparently, uh, there was a production of Company that Sondheim either, I don't think he saw it, I think he must have just heard about it, but apparently, at the end of this production of Company, the director chose to have Bobby kill himself, <laughs> which is not, I don't know how you even begin to justify Bobby Committing suicide at the end of Company? Why? He's upset about not being married, being alive. Does he? Does he kill himself after singing the song "Being Alive"? Because if he, I wouldn't be able to stop laughing. They'd have to drag me out on a fucking on a what is it? An ambulance gurney? <laughs> what is it? An ambulance bed? You know, a rolling ambulance bed. But I'm on it. Get that ambulance bed out here. It's so utterly ridiculous. It kills me. I find it so funny. Let's talk about the show that we are focusing on this week, right? James Joy- The Dead. Let's get the show facts. Alright. So, James Joyce's The Dead was a 2000 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Though it is important to note, the show was specifically advertised not as a musical, but as, quote, a play with music. So, ultimately, it was considered eligible for Best Musical, but we're really stretching the term here to include James Joyce's The Dead. That show opened on Broadway on January 11th, 2000 at the Belasco Theater, and ...and ran for 120 performances. The book was written by Richard Nelson. Uh, That book is based on the 1914 James Joyce short story, The Dead, which is included as part of the collection Dubliners. The music for the show was written by Sean Davey. Uh, The lyrics, uh, the specific credit we get here, the lyrics were conceived and adapted by Richard Nelson and Sean Davey. The director of the production was Richard Nelson. The musical director was Charles Prince. The choreographer was Sean. The set design was by David Jenkins. The lighting design was by Jennifer Tipton. And the costume design was by Jane Greenwood. The original Broadway cast included Blair Brown, Patti Croft, Brian Davies, Daisy Egan, Dashiell Eves, Sally Ann Howes, John Kelly, Brooke, Sonny Moraber, Marnie Nixon, Alice Ripley, who was referenced during the American Psycho episode of the Snub Club, if you're a Patreon donor. Uh, The cast also included Emily Skinner, Steven Spinella, and the one, the only, Christopher Walken. Oh! This is my Christopher Walken impression. It's very good, Ah, yeah. The Hunt for Red October is a movie that I was maybe in, but no, probably not. <laughs> It's getting worse. If you've ripped the earbuds out of your ears in disgust, I wouldn't blame you at all. Uh, So this would have been Christopher Walken during his blast from the past, sleepy hollow phase, 1999, 2000. I checked the IMDB, I checked the filmography. That's where we are just to, and he's the lead. Christopher Walken is the lead in this show, I should say. Tony nods. So the show was nominated for best musical, of course. It was also nominated for best original score, Sean Davey and Richard Nelson. It was also nominated for best performance a leading actor in a musical, Christopher Walken. And it was also nominated for Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical, Stephen Spinella. Uh, It won Best Book of a Musical. So that award went to Richard Nelson. Five nominations total, one win. So I read the original short story. Uh, Many people consider it to be a novella due to its length. It's just long enough to where it's sort of straddling that line. To spoil it, I did read the original short story because I couldn't find a copy of the book. I was not able to track that down unfortunately. So I'm going to give you the character breakdown and then I'm going to give you my rundown of the original story. So I don't know how it was adapted for the stage. I don't know what got cut out or changed or tweaked. Uh, but that's what I'm going to give you. And you're going to like it, baby. Or you're going to like it. So to begin the character breakdown, we have Gabriel Conroy, as played by Christopher Walken. Greta Conroy, Gabriel's wife, as played by Blair Brown. Kate and Julia Morkin, who are Gabriel's aunts. Mary Jane Morrican Kate and Julia's niece, slash Gabriel's cousin. Lily, as played by Brooke Sonny Moriber. Molly Ivers, Gabriel's friend and a fierce Irish nationalist, played by Alice Ripley. We have Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown's big defining characteristic is that he is the only Protestant in attendance at the Christmas party where this story takes place. We also have Freddie Malins, an alcoholic who attends that Christmas party with his aging elderly mother. Uh, The character of Aunt Kate has a very good quote from the original story. I'll interrupt this character breakdown to provide this quote. Uh, Kate says of Freddie, she's talking to Gabriel, she says, slip down Gabriel like a good fellow and see if he's alright. Right, and don't let him up if he's screwed. I'm sure he's screwed, I'm sure he is. She keeps saying screwed as a synonym for drunk, plastered, wasted. Find it to be very funny. And the only other characters we have are Bartle Darcy, a retired opera tenor, and Michael Fury, Greta's love from her childhood, who fell ill and died. So Joyce would later allude to the characters of Gabriel Greta, Kate Julia, and Bartle in Ulysses, though. None of them make direct appearances in the novel. So if you've read Ulysses, which I have not, you just had a wonderful little bit of trivia. For the rest of us, it's just only mildly interesting. that's that's about as much as we could get out of that. The plot revolves around Kate and Julia's annual Christmas party, which I did make reference to. Uh, This party is described as an event that is always well attended and thoroughly successful. Gabriel arrives with his wife, Greta, a few hours late to that Christmas party. His thoughts focused on a speech he is expected to give after dinner. Now, Gabriel has written several speeches for these Christmas parties over the years, but he's concerned inclusion of some poetry. He's chosen to include some poetry in his latest speech. He's afraid that it will leave the less educated party coers baffled and annoyed. This is the first sign that Gabriel is both neurotic and more than a little full of himself, a little condescending. While removing his winter clothing, Gabriel strikes up a conversation with Lily, the young woman who assists Kate and Julia, and has spent the majority of the evening receiving guests as they arrive. Gabriel has known Lily since she was a very little girl, and when he confirms she recently completed her schooling, he asks if she has any marriage plans in development. This comment causes Lily's mood to darken somewhat, and she makes a comment about men wanting nothing more than what they can get, essentially. Specifically, I did write down the quote, the man that is now is only all palaver and what they can get out of you. This comment baffles Gabriel, and he very awkwardly forces a tip into Lily's hand. She tries to refuse it, but he insists before he joins the rest of the partygoers. This is what I refer to as awkward interaction with woman one of three. Uh, In summary, that that boiled down from Gabriel's perspective. Lily's being a weird bird, she is. Is Lily in a bad mood? Is it my fault that Lily is in a bad mood? Ugh, I'm all for and slummoxed. Oh, how I'm slummoxed, I do say. That's my summary of awkward interaction with woman one of three. (laughs) During the Christmas party, Gabriel interacts with Molly Ivers, who is quick to reveal how she's discovered something about Gabriel, namely how Gabriel has been writing book reviews under a pseudonym for the Unionist paper, The Daily Express. When she's not pressuring Gabriel to embrace his Irish heritage, Molly mockingly refers to him as a West Briton, aka a supporter of English rule over Ireland. This thoroughly irritates Gabriel to no end, though he has no idea how to respond, express himself. When Molly decides to leave the party early, Gabriel offers to walk her home since she lives nearby. But this offer is politely declined by Molly. Her cheerfulness upon exiting, she's in this very uh, sort of maybe performative, but maybe genuinely happy mood, and this mood really perplexes Gabriel. So awkward interaction with woman two of three. In summary, <laughs> this is just again my my summary of Gabriel's attitude. Seemingly, uh, she and. Assaulted me, and I'm clearly upset about it. So, why is she acting all happy and refusing my offer to walk her home? What a fucking weird bird! How annoying. Er, women. Before I get to the story's finale and the third of those awkward interactions, I'll provide some highlights from the Christmas party. So, number one, Gabriel's Aunt Julia sings a song for the group that is met with great enthusiasm, leading Aunt Kate, her sister, to bemoan what could have been for her sister if she hadn't wasted her time with the local choir. Qual- I'm pretty sure it's implied women were eventually kicked out of the local choir, which only infuriated Kate all the more. For her part, Julia seems unfazed by these developments, and almost maybe is a little embarrassed by all of the praise that she receives for singing. Number two, Bartle Darcy, the retired opera tenor, finds himself in a conversation about the current generation of opera singers, which many in attendance agree are not nearly as talented as their predecessors. One guest mentions how they recently saw a black man perform opera on stage, which produced is a few side-eye reactions. No one's being openly, outwardly racist, but there is sort of a a confusion on the part of everyone involved in this conversation. Freddie Malins, the alcoholic, he interjects with a bit of really, it's a really clear-eyed analysis of what's going on because he, he pointedly asks, in effect, why do you not like this guy? Is it because he's black? This brings the conversation to a crashing halt, and the subject is very calmly, very quiet changed after a moment of silence. And number three, Gabriel's speech goes off without a hitch. He extols the virtues of his aunts and cousin uh, who have thrown this party for everyone, taking time to compliment their hospitality and their good humor. Specifically, this is used as a springboard to decry the new generation. So again, we get more commentary on the current generation, which Gabriel believes is living in a, quote, skeptical, thought-tormented age that Does not value humor or hospitality nearly as much uh, as their predecessors do and have in the past. This bit, this little dig at the current generation, was added into the speech at the last minute, and only after Gabriel's awkward interaction with Molly Ivers, this was meant to make her feel like an idiot for insulting him, and she's already gone, so it doesn't matter, and he's left feeling very unsatisfied in regards to that little inclusion in his speech. The party comes to an end, and Gabriel's thoughts quickly turn to his wife, Greta. Upon seeing her on the staircase, he is struck by her beauty, wondering how he could potentially capture her in a painting. In this moment, Greta is absorbed by the sound of an old Irish song being played on a piano in another room of the house, but Gabriel is only transfixed by her appearance. As he walks behind her in the snow, Gabriel also does not notice how Greta is discussing that Irish song with the man who had been playing it moments earlier because he is too busy thinking about the life they have shared together and how he really, really wants to fuck he really wants to bone down with his wife. It's pretty clear that Gabriel is drunk, uh, considering he spent like an hour carving up a big-ass goose while drinking nonstop. He was just guzzling sherry and port and all that. He was mixing his alcohol. <laughs> Never a good thing. And now he is just straight-up itching to scratch that fuck itch. Ooh, I've got a fuck itch, and I have got to scratch it, baby. And when we get back to our place, I am going to fuck her when Gabriel and Greta eventually return to their home, though they may arrive at a hotel, this was a little unclear to me. Hotel? Home? Not sure. Gabriel is practically vibrating. He is so damn horny, but he wants Greta to come to him, not the other way around, and so they engage in a bit of stilted chit-chat that very quickly begins to low-key enrage Gabriel. He see, he's thinking to himself essentially, when is she going to cross over to my side of the room and tell me, to fuck her, essentially. Greta does eventually kiss Gabriel, only to dissolve into tears and confess what's been on her mind since they left the party. The Irish song she heard being played was once sung by a boy she knew as a child, Michael Fury. Greta and Michael loved each other as children, but he fell ill, and his condition worsened after he appeared at her home one night during a rainstorm. He was standing out in the middle of the rain, and his illness worsened, and he died as a result. So yes, Michael died, and the memory has overwhelmed her. This memory of this boy has overwhelmed her. And she falls asleep, half-dressed, having received not a single word of consolation from Gabriel, it should be noted. He watches her sleep, and notes how her face has aged terribly. He's basically like, well, she's not nearly as pretty as she would have been back then. That much is quite clear. He crawls into bed with her, unable to stop thinking about dead Michael Fury. So this is awkward interaction with woman three of three in summary. Why the hell is my weird bird of a wife crying about this dumb dead kid she loved? She's supposed to love me. Why aren't we fucking right now? It's not like she can fuck the dead kid. He's dead. The dead don't fuck. This is so annoying. Whatever. He's not even that pretty anymore. Stupid, dumb, dead kid cock-blocking me from the past. Oh, 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 you're haunting my dick. The more I think about it, the more I'm genuinely greatly amused by Gabriel's complete inability to relate to or empathize with any of the women in this story. If they're not his aging aunts or spinster cousin, he just don't get them, baby. They're weird. (laughs) They're weird birds. Gabriel's withering dismissal of the thought tormented age is a dismissal of every woman in the story who thinks too damn much and gets in the way of Gabriel living his damn life, basically. Perhaps James Joyce's point was more melancholic. I'm sure it was. More in keeping with the question, can we really know anyone? But I like this gender reading a lot more. I like my take, baby. Gabriel's dumb. The women are trying to sort out their decidedly more complex inner lives, and it annoys the shit out of Gabriel. Turn off your brains, you dumb broads, and fuck me, for God's sake. That Christopher Walken plays Gabriel makes it all the funnier to me. I really don't see those I don't see these two men coming together to create one character, but there you go. Alright. So for the purposes of researching this episode, as I said, I've of course read the original short story, which is quite absorbing and does an excellent job of crystallizing the chaotic bustle of a large gathering. It really gets that right. The shared joys and affection you'd feel as a group at a big holiday event, as well as the anxiety and minor confrontations you'd have to deal with constantly when the alcohol is flowing and emotions are high. These experiences are universal, and Joyce captures them very well. He also describes a pudding in great detail, which made me want to tuck in with a nice pudding. The descriptions of the food, the dinner menu in general, really got me hangry. You know, h a n g r y. Hangry, you know what I mean? Uh, But the pudding, I should say the pudding, getting back to the pudding. The pudding in the short story is brown. It's an old school, old fashioned pudding and apparently those were just straight up brown. Brown pudding, yuck. Is it a chocolate pudding? Is that why it's brown? That's the only kind of putting I like that's brown. And then the only other source that I dipped into was the 2000 Tony Awards performance of a song called Parnell's Plight. Uh, This is the only other source. Again, I could not find the script, and there is no album, no Broadway cast album of this play with music. Again, not a traditional musical. And what's so crazy is that I, I kind of assumed Christopher Walken would be in this clip, you know, being a part of this performance, but he must have already dipped out or just didn't want to participate or was maybe filming a movie somewhere else because uh, for the life of me, I cannot find him in this clip. The performance is entertaining enough. You know, it's diverting. It didn't put me to sleep necessarily. Parnell's Pite specifically is this very low key party song. And it's also very pro Irish. The national pride is very clear in this song. And we get a little bit of the book. We get some of the characters talking about how they're very excited to be hearing this song. They haven't heard it in ages. And then I believe the character of Gabriel, who again is not played by Christopher Walken in, in this in this clip. Uh, he's very critical of the song. He talks about how it's very corny and I believe the character of Mary Ivor is he and her have this little interaction right as the song is starting where he insults her. He says, oh of course you would like this because you're obsessed with Ireland and she kind of gives him this look and then we just go into this uh, very uh, old school. Uh, we got a little drum we got a little plinky plunk piano and everyone's just having a grand old time and then it sort of just comes to an end it doesn't really make that much of an impression but again it seems pleasant enough Uh, I don't mean to be condescending, because I certainly don't feel as... If I, I don't feel like I'm in that position. I don't feel like I'm going, mm, what a nice little show this seems to be. But again, it doesn't really pop. It, it's very purposefully low-key, so there you go. As I said, there is no Broadway cast album for James Joyce's The Dead, but I was able to confirm the complete list of songs that are featured in that show. So for the sake of, uh, you know, context, transparency, and being a completionist, <laughs> I will provide that list of songs to you now. Killarney's Lakes, Kate Kim- Parnell's Plight, of course. Adieu to Ballet Shannon, When a Lovely Lady, Three Jolly Pigeons, Golden Hair, Three Graces, Naughty Girls, Wake the Dead, Darcy's Aria, Queen of Our Hearts, There is a reprise of When Lovely Lady, and then we close out with Michael Fury, and a song known as The Living and, of course, appropriately, The Dead. The Living and the Dead is the name of that finale. And that's it. That's kind of all I have for you in terms of, I can't really deconstruct the show, beyond talking about that short story and the Tony's performance. So unfortunately, we have come so quickly to the point where we got to hand it over to our sponsor, right, Patty? Let's hear a word from our sponsor, 5678 Orange Grove Coffee. Ooh, I got to say, we, we've we been drinking it all morning. We are hept up. And I'm just going to say this right now. If you want to wake up in the morning, but still feel very grounded and very refreshed, it doesn't, there's not like a, I feel like I have a natural bounce in my step right now. And I think it is due to the coffee. Uh, Patty's nodding. I think we're in both, we're both in agreement. There's no artificial buzz. It doesn't feel like I'm vibrating like we know when I normally drink coffee. But again, uh, we already have a wonderful person coming into the studio this week who can speak more to this wonderful brand. So So again, take it away, 5678 Orange Grove. My name is Henry Jekyll, and you may know me as a doctor and a scientist, and the mm, the co-lead of Jekyll and Hyde, the musical. So, so thank you for, uh, you know, thank you for paying attention. Thank you for knowing who I am. Thank you very much. You know, I don't get a lot of credit. Uh, the, the other half of me, uh, Edward Hyde. That's that's his name. How could I forget it? You know, Edward Hyde gets a lot of attention because he's very he's a very big personality. I'm a bit of, I'm more low key. Uh, but I, I'd just like to thank everyone involved for just having a. a giving me the opportunity to have the spotlight. Because if, I swear to God, if, if if I was sharing the spotlight right now with Edward Hyde, if I allowed him to come out right now, I'm going to tell you what he would say, and you wouldn't appreciate it. He would start saying the word cuck within 1.9 seconds. He would call me a cuck. He would call everyone in the studio a cuck. And I'm just, I, I'm thankful for you. It's, it's just so rare that I get a moment to myself. And when I do have a moment to myself, I like to tuck in. It's true. With a cup of five, six, seven, eight Orange Grove, I love the citrus zest, and uh, as was just mentioned moments earlier, just mere seconds earlier, it does. It gives you this very organic boost of energy. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dealing with the shimmy shams. Not a scientific term, again. I am a doctor and a scientist, uh, but I do like to play play around with terms a little bit. I, I like to call them the, the shimmy shams. And I got them constantly on all of these other brands of coffee. I was constantly feeling uh, very out of sorts when really, when you wake up in the morning and you're feeling groggy, you want to just hit the ground running, but hit it smoothly, hit it calmly, not crash into it. And frankly, all of those other coffees, when, when they made me jittery, they made Edward Hyde come out. And the Orange Grove doesn't do that. It allows me to stay in my own skin, and that's wonderful because I don't wind up calling everyone around me a cuck. I'm calling everyone a cuck constantly, and I try to tell them it's not me, it's Edward Hyde. And some people understand my wife, thank God for her, thank God for her, but others, not so much. People get really upset with me. Someone put a tomato in my mouth. That's right, they did. They put a fuck-old tomato in my mouth. They opened my jaw, and I do apologize for cussing. That's more of the Edward Hyde coming out. You know, I'm actually... <laughs> I'm getting more anxious the more I talk about him. I can feel him sort of bubbling up to the surface. So I'm just going to end it there. Five, six, seven, eight, Orange Grove Coffee. You can count on it, and thank you again. Uh, my, <laughs> I'm so embarrassed. My, my cheeks are flush, and my, oh, my glasses are starting to fog up, so that's definitely a sign that... Oh, I can feel it coming in the air of night. Oh, I have to go. Five, six, seven, eight. Ah, coffee. Ah. On it go. Ah. You can count on it. Ah. Final thoughts on James Joyce's The Dead. I suppose I don't have any truly conclusive thoughts on the show itself. It would be unfair for me to pretend otherwise. I mean, how could I? It barely exists in the year of our Lord, 2019, but the story was fairly absorbing, and the Tony's performance only threatened to whisk me off to Nemo in Slumberland. I didn't fall asleep, but my head did dip forward slightly, and I did drool a little bit, but into a little tight. Tiny Dixie Cup. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> only a little bit, okay? I only drooled a little bit, okay, mommy? Okay, mommy? So in the year 2000, uh, the, the show that won the award for best musical was Contact, and the other nominees that year were Swing and The Wild Party. Now, I myself am partial to Andrew Lippa's version of The Wild Party over that of Michael John Lacusa, but Lippa's show ran off Broadway and thus was never eligible for any Tony Awards. That being said, Lacusa's The Wild Party. Came can claim Eartha Kit as a cast member which is enough to make me think it should have won out over the likes of Swing and Contact. This is a very strange season overall. When you consider Contact and Swing are clearly dance reviews and not musicals in the traditional book or integrated sense. Swing has a credited book writer I should say, but according to Wikipedia, the show has no dialogue. So what the hell is up with that? I have to ask. And Remember, The Dead was advertised as a play with music, so we're really stretching the term musical when nominating all three of these shows. Slim pickings overall. And when you look for potential replacements in the snub club territory, you're met with Putting It Together, Cat and the Kings, Marie Christine, and Saturday Night Fever. So, yeah. Uh, Question, is Marie Christine any good? I've never made it through the entire album, admittedly. I did use one of its songs for an audition at one point, in college, but never made it through the entire album. Anyway, La The Wild Party should have won, Enough said, full stop, period. When it comes to ranking the show, I do unfortunately have to put James Joyce's The Dead in the Phantom Zone, right alongside a big deal. There just wasn't enough material to fairly rank it against all of the other shows we've discussed on the podcast, but I do have a great deal of changes to announce in regards to our current ranking. Now, I I've been I've been making this clear the ranking of the shows can' change at any time I've put that out there over the course of several several episodes and I, this week I just I was inspired to really give the list a hard look and I have decided to make some changes so let's talk about those changes Sweeney Todd which just last week was in the number two slot has moved to number three Man of La Mancha which was previously at the number six slot is now sitting comfortably in the number five slot. The <laughs> Grind, which was previously at number 13, is now at number 11. South Pacific, which was previously at number 11, is now at number 12. And finally, uh, we have Big River moving from uh, number 16 to number 15. We're actually bumping up Big River by one slot. Now, I know that's a lot to consider. So go to our Twitter profile. There is a pinned tweet there. It'll take you right to the Google sheet. The second tab will give you this rundown, this current ranking. But I am going to read the whole list right now for you. So you don't even have to do that. You know what? You don't even to do that but I don't do this every week is the point so use the pinned tweet that Google Sheet is a consistent reference, but let's just get the whole list now. Starting, let's start at the bottom. So we have number 19, Miss Saigon. Number 18, Avenue Q. Number 17, Swinging on a Star. Number 16, The Goodbye Girl. Number 15, Big River. Number 14, Bubbling Brown Sugar. Number 13, Shrek the Musical. Number 12, South Pacific. Number 11, Grind. Number 10, Juan Darien, A Carnival Mass. Number 9, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. Number 8, Kiss of the Spider Woman. Number 7, Kiss Me Kate. Number 6, The producers number five *Man of la mancha number four passing strange number three sweeney todd number two into the woods and number one as always, forever and always, unless something comes along to really disrupt things, Caroline or change. Now, I know just last week, again, Sweeney Todd was above Into the Woods, so what made me change that? Well, honestly, at the end of the day, they kind of are always, there's a fluidity there, there's a flexibility there in regards to those two slots. I really enjoy both of those shows so much, and I know I said that Sweeney Todd won out in terms of, I think I said that I would much rather be in that show or direct that show than Into the Woods, but giving it a little bit more thought it didn't take much time for me to realize no that's not actually true that's not actually true i was in love with sweeney todd that week i still love the show but i think my affection for into the woods ultimately does win out over that of sweeney todd so there you go that's the current ranking again who knows when and how that will change no show related ephemera this week unfortunately which means that it is now time to determine which show we will discuss next week and to do that we'll need to take a ride on the musical character. Cell, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Stockings and Tobacco, An Evening with Rolf and Alameda Turner. Everyone ready? All right, then away we go. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have stepped off of the musical carousel. I couldn't be happier with where we have landed. This is one of my favorite shows by a mile. This is a nominee from 1981, and it is Woman of the Year starring Lauren Bacall. I love this show. The score is so good, and I am so excited to be talking about it with you next week. So fantastic. So Woman of the Year. It's a show that I don't think a lot of people know all that much about. So again, really excited to... To be uh, bringing that to you next week. If you are interested in financially supporting this show, which is made available for free, we have a free feed, of course, through iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean, but if you want to financially support the show, go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod, where you can get a, a complete breakdown of all of our pay tiers. You can donate one, three, five, or $10 a month. Uh, the only thing that I'll mention right now, you're going to have to go to that website, patreon.com musicalmanpod, to get all the details, but I will say right now, if you donate at least $1 a month, you will get a verbal shout out each and every week. So let's give a verbal shout out to Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. Thank you so much. Uh, Just to let you know, if you do decide to donate to the show, thank you in advance. That money goes toward the purchase of cast recordings, movie rentals, and offsetting Podbean costs. If we ever get to the point where we're bringing in $100 or more in total monthly donations, that will result in my producing M3, the movie Musical Man. If you're listening through iTunes, please go to the iTunes store and write a five-star review. If you let me know you have done as much, I will send you my cover of Light My Candle from Rent. You might be streaming the show through musicalmanpod.podby.com or Stitcher. We are available on Twitter. That's at musicalmanpod, and you can email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Much thanks to Marisol for correcting my pronunciation of the title of the novel on which Kiss of the Spider Woman is based. The correct pronunciation The pronunciation of that is El Beso de la Mujer Araña. I hope I got that right. I gave myself one take to really cleanly say that. So Marisol, give me that feedback. Uh, Also, as always, I'm 100% here to field any responses you might have to my previous commentaries, this commentary. If you are a strong advocate for a particular show I didn't happen to enjoy, or if you have criticisms for a show I previously championed, I want to hear those arguments. I try to speak from a place of confidence, but I don't want that to mutate into, uh, I used this word earlier, Con dissension. I don't want it to mutate into sneering on my part over time. So please, reach out if you disagree with me. I would love to hear from you. Much thanks go out to Alex Green for designing our beautiful logo, as well as Zach Little for creating our wonderful intro and outro music. That's that doorbell. I'm not scared of it. You know, I used to be so afraid of when and where it would come. I'm j- I love the fact that we've been doing this show long enough to where I'm not scared anymore. Yes, but you know what that sound means? Oh, just when the fun is starting, comes the time for parting. Oh, well. Well, Catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, Afida Shen, and good night.